0: Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for The Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings and our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There you'll also find important announcements along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives lives of others and in the world around us. He is risen. So good to be with you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Even just while we were in silence and praying, I just got a sense that for some of you, uh, you need some hope injected into your veins. And so we're going to tell the resurrection story this morning. And um, my sense is that for some of you, you're gonna leave with some hope flowing through you. And that's been my prayer for us all week. And so uh, come, come Holy Spirit and do the thing. Amen. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the resurrection story uh, maybe just a little differently this morning. Um, but I think it will all come together towards the end. So in the moments uh, after the death of Jesus, the Roman authorities handed the body of Jesus over to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea grabs Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the sort of judicial court system that actually sentenced Jesus to death. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were both secret disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus um, was a religious man. Joseph was very likely a wealthy man. And uh, they they worked together in the late hours of the afternoon, um, placing Jesus's body into a tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb. He was a wealthy man. He had just had a freshly hewn tomb cut out for the body of Jesus. And... uh, One of the most interesting things about the story here, which we don't have time to dig into today, but is itself a proclamation of the gospel, is the fact that the two men who are responsible for the body of Jesus were never able to find the courage to publicly follow Jesus. And I'm just blown away by that. I could preach a sermon on that, but I'm going to leave that for another time. Here they are in the middle of the central guiding narrative of the human history, holding in their arms God's dead body. And they were never able to publicly declare that they wanted to follow Jesus. Just wanted you to let that sit with you for a second. It's clear from Mark's gospel that Joseph stopped at the market and bought a linen burial cloth and Nicodemus picked up a mixture of myrrh and aloes, a hundred pounds of spices, which would soak the linen and wrap the body of Jesus. And they were placing him into this tomb uh, just for a couple of days, until the final burial could happen a few days later, um, they they placed Jesus in that tomb. And Luke's gospel includes the detail that the women, the women who had come and followed Jesus to Jerusalem, they were the ones that lingered far enough, and they followed Joseph and Nicodemus to see where Jesus was was laid, so that they could come back a couple of days later with their own set of spices to attend to the body of Jesus for a final burial. And those women went home, and everyone rested on the Sabbath. One of those women was Mary Magdalene. The gospel writer John makes it a point several times to mention that she is the first one to the tomb on Sunday morning. She came with her own prepared spices for the final burial of Jesus, and when she had arrived, she saw that the stone had been removed, and so she saw the tomb was empty, and she ran to get Peter and John, telling them that someone had already taken the body away. So she gets to Peter and John, and Peter and John begin to ran to the tomb. And John, because he's writing the story, makes sure to let everybody know that he's the first one to get there. He makes it really clear that he has some time to look around in the empty tomb before Peter comes, and Peter also comes and looks into the empty tomb. And when Peter finally gets there, he goes to the empty tomb, and John joins him again, and they look at the linen cloth that Joseph and Nicodemus had wrapped up, and I want you to think about what it smelled like with 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe and spices sort of wafting into the air. And so I'm going to pick the story up in John chapter 20, verse 9. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. I'm also going to put it for you on the screen here because I know that that's important. So John 20 Beginning in verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, says Peter and John, looking at the empty tomb. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying, so they went, they went back home. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, And the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him way, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And Mary left and announced to the disciples that she had seen the Lord. That's how the story unfolds. So listen, in the Gospel of John, the entire resurrection narrative is framed within Mary Magdalene's story. Again, because she's the first one on the scene in the early sunrise hours. She's carrying her spices for the final burial of the body of Jesus. She's the one upon whose lips are the first words of panic, discovering that the tomb is empty. She is the one out of her mouth later on that the first words of good news of resurrection are proclaimed. And she is the first one to carry the message back to the disciples. And in many of the church traditions, she is labeled the apostle to the apostles. And I just want to remark here that the first apostle was a woman. Very important uh, in this community that you know that. And she lingers at the tomb. Do you notice how she lingers? Do you notice how she lingers at the tomb? She waits. John and Peter fled. They went back home, but Mary lingers at the tomb, and she lingers to weep at the tomb of Jesus, and it's because she lingers and peers into the empty tomb that she sees the angels, and eventually she sees Jesus, and the rest of the day unfolds the way it does because She lingers. I want you to hold that in your hands. We're going to come back to that. Because I want to linger with you on this story of Mary Magdalene. I want to come back to this moment where Mary is weeping at the tomb, at the empty tomb of Jesus on Easter morning. And we're going to look at the significance of the resurrection. But first, I want to fill in some gaps in the story for what it happens from the last few moments of the cross leading up to this scene. And I want to do it in three short scenes. Scene one, I'm thirsty. So go back with me into your mind with Jesus on the cross. Maybe you guys have seen, you know, one of the movies depicting Jesus on the cross, or you have your own version of that story in your own imagination of prayer. I want you to go back with me to that moment. One of the things that Jesus cries out from the cross is, I'm thirsty, which As attentive readers of John's gospel, we would for certain be brought to the moment where Jesus himself is standing at the top of the temple steps during a religious ceremony in John chapter 7. We're going to go back a little bit even further. Back in John 7, they've been gathering water all day long from the pool of Shiloham. Do you guys remember the pool of Shiloham? If you were here a few months ago, we talked about the pool of Shiloham. This is where the place that Jesus sent, the the guy that he put mud into his eyes, Jesus sent this guy to the pool of Shiloham to wash his eyes. But while he's washing his eyes, there's a religious procession happening here in John chapter 7 where all of the religious leaders are dipping water out of the pool of Shiloh, and they're carrying it to the temple and they're dumping it into a big basin, which eventually they're going to pour down the steps of the temple. And once that basin is full of water, one of the religious leaders, one of the priests or the Pharisees, I mean, it could have been Nicodemus poured water from the top of the temple, and it ran down the steps. And in this festival, they were enacting a vision from the prophet Ezekiel. This image of water running down the temple steps comes to us from a time in Israel's history when Ezekiel, who was uh, one of the ancient prophets to the people of Israel, was, was prophesying first to them as a warning, but then when the Babylonians came in and took over their city, he begins to transition his message to a message of hope. And he begins to see these visions, and God begins to say to him, I want you to tell the people of the visions that you see. And Ezekiel saw a vision, and the vision was this, a tiny stream pouring out of the temple. A tiny stream pouring out of the temple. A tiny stream pouring out of the temple. you got to remember that which was the place where the presence of God was said to dwell. And in Ezekiel's vision, the stream went down the temple stairs where it eventually became a river that flowed into the desert and it got wider and deeper and wider and deeper until trees and fruit trees and herbs lined this river flowing out of the temple and upon these trees were leaves and fruit that would be for the healing of the nations. This is the image that we get in Ezekiel. This is what is being enacted on the temple steps when they pour water out of the basin. It's a symbolic act of hope that one day the presence of God will spill out of the temple into the world for the healing of the nations. And in John chapter 7, Jesus is standing while this is happening, while the water is spilling down the temple steps. He's standing there and he says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out of them. Jesus in John 7 is identifying himself with Ezekiel's river image. I'm the river you've been waiting for, he says. The living water is flowing out of me, and if you come to me, that living water will eventually flow out of you. Are you guys with me? Okay. Which is another way of saying the presence of God is in me and it will be in you. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. This is the scene of John 7. I'm thirsty, says Jesus from the cross. Jesus on the cross, waiting for the living water to well up from within him. Scene 2, becoming the human temple. The next thing that Jesus cries out from the cross is, it is finished. And he hangs his head and he dies. It is finished. And the first human of the new creation breathes his last breath. Matthew's gospel says that Jesus cried out in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And at the moment of his death, The veil in the temple, which is the place where the Jewish people thought that the presence of God dwell at the moment of Jesus' death, the gospel writers say, that the veil that separated the presence of God from the people tore in two. And I can only imagine that it was the very presence of God spilling out of the temple that ripped the curtain in half. And the presence of God flew in that moment out of the temple. And they pierced his side. And blood and water began to flow out of Jesus. And not only was he the first human of the new creation, but he was now also Ezekiel's temple where water began to flow out. You see the imagery the living water begins to flow out of the sight of Jesus. And we can remember in John chapter 2, when Jesus said to the religious leaders that if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. He's referring to his body. His body is becoming the temple in this moment, just like in Ezekiel's vision. And as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are attending to the body of Jesus, Matthew reports that tombs fly open and dead people raised from the grave. Have you guys seen that part of the story in Matthew's gospel? We forget that this happened. We, we get focused on Easter Sunday, but in the moment of Jesus' death, people are resurrected from the dead. Now, I don't know what they did on Saturday, but Matthew's gospel says that on Sunday, they were walking around the city. That happened. And at some point in these hours between death and resurrection, Jesus went to a place that is known as Hades. And we're now at scene three because Jesus enters into death. For the ancient people, Hades was the place of death. It was, it was the place that they, they called death. It was where you went in the afterlife. And Hades is the, is the word that the Greeks used for the Hebrew word Sheol. Do you guys ever read the Psalms? And, and the psalmist says, you will not neglect me. You will not leave me in the place of Sheol. It's the place of death. And so uh, I want to see if you can see this. This is an ancient uh, iconography of a scene where Jesus is going down into Haiti. And you can see Jesus here, obviously dressed in white, showing in glory behind him. There's a whole bunch of people. We won't go into that. But I want you to see, can you see that he is grabbing the wrists of two people? This image of sacred iconography is called the Anastasius, which means resurrection. And it depicts what is said to have happened on Holy Saturday, the day between those last words on the cross and the first sunrise of new creation on Easter morning. And it's the image of Jesus descending in the place of death to rescue all that have already died, which uh, death is the natural consequence of turning away from God. And Jesus is going down to the place of Hades to undo that consequence. Not just for us, but all the way back to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve. And there they are. That's who that is, Adam and Eve. And one of the the things I love about this ancient iconography is that uh, if you look closely, you can see that Jesus is grabbing Adam and Eve by the wrists. Their, their hands are absolutely limp. And what this is said to signify is that Adam and Eve and everybody after them are completely helpless on their own to lift themselves out of the consequence of death. Only Christ can do that. There's this sense of passivity That Jesus says, I can rescue you, and what it means to follow Jesus is just to lift up your hands and allow them to be grabbed onto by the living Christ, and he will lift you out of death and sin. If you look closer, uh, you'll see a little man tied up down here at the bottom. Do you see the little man tied up at the bottom? Do you see he's sort of like just like surrounded by bones and all sorts of weird things? And do you see that the tomb that Adam and Eve are both standing on and the tomb is cracked open and they're being led out of death? But this little man, he gets just a little tiny spot on the iconography because he's not very important anymore. Many traditions say that that little man is sort of the depiction of death himself, now tied up. And other traditions begin to understand this as Satan himself, bound up by Jesus, tied up with no more power. And whether you think it's death or whether you think it's Satan, it doesn't really matter because uh, basically what it means is that both death and Satan are now conquered and tied up. And they occupy such a little part of the picture now that it's like if you, if you don't look closely at the iconography, you're going to miss it because it's not really that important anymore. <laughs> this tradition depicted here in iconography gets solidified in the creeds, particularly the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He, meaning Jesus, descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose from the dead and brought everybody with him, including you. It's articulated by Peter in his first letter when he says that after he died, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison, and when Peter in that first letter is talking about the reality that everyone will eventually have to face God in judgment God is going to judge both the living and the dead. And he says that this is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they were destined to die, like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. This is what Peter is saying. This is what the image is, is, is putting forth. So this is Jesus entering into the place of death, preaching the good news, and bringing the dead up with him into his resurrection. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, the part of the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, can I, anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia here? Isn't it amazing we're still reading these books? If you're a fan of those stories, this is the image when Aslan goes into the White Witch's castle and begins to breathe on all of the statues. The ones who have died get breath onto them, and they, what do they do? They, they come alive. They wake up. That's what that image is about, bringing them back to life with his own breath. And all of this story draws from an even earlier version of a similar story. We go back again to the prophet Ezekiel writing to a people who are living in exile so remember, Ezekiel had that vision of a, of a little stream coming out of the temple. Well, he had another vision as well. And the other vision he has is a vision of a valley of dry bones, a valley of dead bodies piled up. And he writes down the vision that he sees and the words that were spoken to him. And this is what the Lord says. He says, speak a prophetic message to these bones. And say, Dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you alive again. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Reading from Ezekiel 37. And so I spoke this message just as he told me, says Ezekiel. And suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley, and the bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. And then I watched muscles and flesh form over the bones, and then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. And so I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. This is all happening in a vision from Ezekiel. Son of man, these bones represent the people. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones, and all hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again, and then I will bring you back to the land. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again. So friends, all of this is happening and unfolding in the hours between the cross and the resurrection. That's what's going on, everything I've just said. Ancient promises of hope are being fulfilled. Jesus is preaching good news to the dead. He's grabbing the wrists of Adam and Eve and leading them out of death along with countless others. He's binding up death and Satan. He's tying them up. I'm sure that didn't take any amount of time at all. He's becoming the temple. He's becoming the first human of the new creation. He's breathing breath into dead, into dry bones, and he's reconciling all of creation back to himself. That's a lot happening before we get to sunrise on Sunday, isn't it? And then we get to sunrise on Easter morning and Mary is standing there at the empty tomb and she's lingering a bit. She's peering into the empty tomb to try to see what she can see and she's experiencing this moment of confusion and disappointment and discouragement and sadness, but what she cannot see is all of the other things that I just described to you. She doesn't know that those things are happening. All of those things that had had unfolded from the time of the death into this moment, what she hasn't understood yet is already unfolding. And I want to remind you this morning that the resurrection is cosmic. It's happening everywhere. Everywhere it's happening. So much of it has already happened. As Hannah reminded us, the victory has been won. We're sort of in this weird in-between time where we're like, I think resurrection is happening somewhere. Could some of that please come to me? The resurrection is a cosmic event that reaches all the way back to the very beginning of the story and extends all the way to the end of the story. It's happening even when we can't see it because resurrection is a cosmic and a universal event. It's not just a story, guys. It did something cosmically. At the same time that Mary was weeping at the tomb, formerly dead bodies were waking up to coffee and tea in Jerusalem. So sometimes our life is experiencing death. Sometimes what we're experiencing is death and confusion. Sometimes we get caught up in our thoughts around death and we get caught up in all of the ways that things are not working for us. But the invitation of the resurrection story is to trust and to hope that resurrection is happening for someone, someplace. And it's working its way into your life like a little bit of yeast working its way through the dough or a little seed that works its way through the garden, digging deep roots and all the way through the garden before it peeps its head up to the sunshine. Does this make sense? Guys, resurrection is happening somewhere in the world. Even if you can't see it happening in your life, it is happening in this community. It is happening in this city. Resurrection is happening because it's a cosmic event that is always unfolding and and spilling out. And sometimes we need to linger at the place of death until we see resurrection. Mary lingers at her place of grief. And I don't know about you, but most people that I have talked to in the past year, it's like a season of lingering at death. We've had a lot of things die in our lives, haven't we? And sometimes you need to linger at the place of death until you see the resurrection. Peter and John run back home. Mary stands there all by herself, peering into the darkness of an empty tomb, again, filled with the aroma of all of those spices and the spices that she herself are carrying. Sometimes we leave the place of death a little bit too soon. And so I want you to think for a moment with me about the things in your hands that feel like death or the darkness that you're peering into. And the invitation of following Jesus is to not leave it too soon, because without this death, there can be no resurrection. Or the way that Jesus put it, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it cannot bear fruit. All of this death in our life, all of the suffering, all of the things that are not going well are like a grain of wheat falling to the ground, and that if we let it and we linger there, there will be resurrection from that. There are lost hopes and dreams, and there are terrible diagnoses, and there are loved ones that are no longer alive, and there are loved ones in your life that are estranged from you, and sometimes you need to linger at the place of death in order to see resurrection. Just be patient. This is why Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For anyone who asks will receive. If you seek, you will find. And if you keep knocking, that door will be open to you. So resurrection is cosmic. And it's universal, and it's happening all throughout creation. And sometimes we need to linger at the place of death to see it. But here is the really, really good news, which is not on my last slide, but you can imagine that it's there. (laughs) I have no idea why it's not there. The resurrection is personal. I've just told a very cosmic version of the story, but the resurrection is personal. The first words that Jesus speaks to Mary when she's weeping is her name Mary. And she immediately recognizes him and says, Rabbi, this is Mary. Uh, who Jesus had cast out seven demons from. This is the one who followed Jesus throughout the countryside, supporting his ministry out of her own wealth. This is a wealthy woman who just basically gave all of it to the ministry of Jesus. And her experience of Jesus was so personal because he had reached his hand into her life and set her free from sin and death and the impact of death and sin in her life. And when he spoke her name, she was filled with hope. And all she wanted to do, of course, was to grab a hold of Jesus. And here's the thing. She did. She is embracing Jesus. And then Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. And I'm going to say to you right now, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) But what happens next is he says, don't cling to me. I want you to go tell the boys. Go tell the fellas. Go tell my friends, my brothers, your brothers, that I am alive. And here's the very interesting thing now, is that what happens next for Mary is both cosmic and personal. She gets to carry the good news to people who haven't yet heard it, and she gets to be the one. So friends, we want to grab a hold of Jesus, which we rightfully need to do because the resurrection part of our life is personal for each one of you. There's resurrection happening in you right now. I promise you, teenagers, there is resurrection life happening in you, even though you cannot see it. I promise you. And if you can't see that, would you just trust that we can see it, that we are a little older and wiser and we're watching it happen in your life? It's happening in you. And what we want to do is we want to grab a hold of Jesus, and this is good and this is right. And there's infinite desire that we have for God to make things right in my own life, to resurrect things in my heart, to breathe breath into my dry bones, to put flesh on the death side of me. And what God is doing in your life is not just for you. Don't cling to me, Mary. Go and tell the boys. And I don't know if you can see any bit of resurrection, but the thing, the word of hope that I want to give to you this morning is that whatever resurrection is happening in you, you are meant to give that away. That's how this works. You then become the temple filled with the presence of God, the aroma of God leaking out into the world. And I have a lot of hope for this community to do that in this city. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to come back up here, and I'm going to to share a little bit more of this story right after worship. But while we worship, I want you to have two parts of this story in your mind. The entire world has been changed by the event of the resurrection, and it's coming after you because it's also personal. Would you stand for worship?